Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Welcome. It's Crystal Arnold, founder of Money White's Women's Show and Money Morphosis. So there is an incredible amount of perspective to be gained from studying um, a, a variety of cultures and how people work together and live together around the world. Um, I've been very fortunate to uh, to spend one year of, of college in the Netherlands and also some time in Guatemala and uh, Mexico. And I feel like the international perspective is, is so important and to acknowledge the variety of ways in which people exchange with one another and what they hold most valuable and how they protect uh, what is sacred to them. And the this is why I am so excited to have our guest, um, Jerry Hush, here with us today. And I will tell you a little bit more about uh, her. She holds a PhD in sociology. And Jerry has over 25 years experience as an international management consultant, scientist, and policy advisor. With her focus on transforming policy to practice, she really focuses on sociocultural components of international development, human rights, public health, global food policy, climate change, and looking at people's livelihoods. Dr. Hush has worked around the world in both private and public sector and is a UN system specialist, having worked uh, with a variety of organizations, including uh, UNICEF and the WHO and the UN Secretariat. So her work in accountability, leadership, and decision-making has fueled her interest in methods that can really visualize data linkages in complex social systems, which is super fascinating to me. Um, she is an artist, trained chef, and urban agriculturist. And she explores markets, collects seeds, invents new recipes for her risk-taking friends. And her life uh, is so incredibly uh, rich from these travels and explorations. And uh, she is just a fascinating uh, person. And so I'm excited to bring her international experience to, to us here today. Uh, thank you for joining us, Jerry. Um, I'd love to begin by hearing a little bit more about what you find most exciting about the work that you do. Yes, I I view myself as a uh, a global explorer. That I was put on the planet, I was lucky to arrive on the planet, so to speak. And because of my actually because of my upbringing, my parents were both involved with in international work. 
grew up around the, the planet, literally, in airports, which led me to becoming a sociologist. So the the background and the way I view the world is really from a, a much bigger perspective than a lot of the people who I get to meet. And it's really been, it's very interesting to share the completely different kinds of views that we can have on the world and on, on money, on wealth, on what it, what it means to live your life productively, this kind of thing. So thank you for having me. Oh, sure. My pleasure. So let, let's talk uh-huh. about that a little bit more about um, how, how people, you've, you've met people around the world and come, I'm, I'm curious how you, how you define wealth and, and what that uh, means, means to you. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question, especially now when everybody is trying to figure out how can we, um, let's say, for example, alleviate poverty, how can we live better? I think wealth to me is not only financial um, wealth and money, but it's much more, I think, the depth of the lived experience that you have um, in your life. So in a personal sense, I've never, ever viewed myself as having any wealth. But I'd certainly view myself as as being rich in that I've lived a very rich life in the sense that I've been able through my work, for example, to travel. Um, I've been able to meet people clearly around the world. But meeting people means that you get to share food with them, you get to share their culture, you get to hear their music, you get to literally live a life that you would not have been able to experience if you hadn't been open to um, exploring and doing something new. So the exploring and doing something new, we often think that you need to have wealth to do that, that you know, wealthy people get to travel. But I've learned, and I think other people, sometimes you meet people when you're traveling, actually, and they say, yeah, yeah, we figured out a way to do this without much money. So I think there's a big difference between ideas that people use when they use the term wealth and associating that just with money, I think, leaves out the ability to have a very rich life, one that's full of other kinds of um, experiences rather than just what you can purchase with, with the money. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really uh, believe that it's so important to, to redefine wealth, and, and I like to look at true wealth as defined in not only financial aspects, but also including our uh, inner wealth relationships and environmental wealth, and yeah. helping us get a bigger picture of what makes life worth living and what contributes to our own well-being. And yeah. I, I feel like it's also connected to this question of, of power and, uh, you know, wanted to hear more from you about, um, you know, what, what does economic empowerment look like around the world and, and in your decades of development and measuring poverty and, and those kinds of things? Uh, what, how, how do you see economic empowerment and its significance? That's a really good question. Actually, that's the kind of question when I sit in meetings, um, especially when I'm surrounded by economists as a sociologist, I raise my hand at times when they probably least expect it. But one of the things I learned, and I think this is still actually an ongoing conversation, is this idea of how do you measure poverty, for example. So maybe you or, and others in the, in the audience at some point in time might have heard 
that the way that poverty is me- uh, measured by the World Bank, for example, which is then used by other global governance organizations like the UN, um, and like US um, uh, AID, all of the sort of development uh, world, they use the idea of, for example, a dollar a day so that poverty is measured by that kind of number. What I've learned is you can actually have less I mean, clearly in the U.S., when we think about this, a dollar a day is a miserable existence. You, you would not, in essence, be able to gain access to a life that would be healthy or, or as I say, um, full. But in societies, if we only measure um, our existence or poverty by money, we lose the, the very important understanding that relationships are often what give us a sense of, of of being um, a member of a community, gaining access to, um, uh, well, let's say, health or water or resources. And what has happened is that we often will measure um, our, our wealth simply by an economic number rather than who we know, social networks, for example. So that what I find actually very interesting is a whole movement now for um, sort of what, I think people have called alternative economies, if you will, barter or the ability to exchange time. Um, So I think one of the critical things I'm trying to extend and talk to people about is that when we talk about changing the world, and as you said in the introduction, my life really has been defined in terms of finding ways to contribute to the betterment of the planet and the people who live on it as well as the rest of the, you know, the environment that we're all part of. So if we only look at our existence and measure our existence by a numeric figure, whether it's a dollar or a Swiss franc or, or any of the other currencies that are used to measure money, I think we're missing the point. And I think at this point in time in human history, we really have to step back for a moment and say, why are we limiting ourselves to understanding um, human well-being simply by using an economic indicator. So it's a little bit of a, um, a critique, I think, if you will, of current ways of doing business, uh, even to the extent of using expression like doing business. How can we make our lives better? And maybe it's not a business model, actually. Maybe there are other ways of putting our lives together. Such a great point, and and the way in you know that our language uh, really forms our our beliefs because there's things like you're broke and uh, yes. earn a living, like as if you don't just inherently have have the right to life without um, earning it, and uh, you know there is there is clearly the need for transformation of our growth economy, which is uh, driven by money as debt, to continue to um, eat the natural resources, to commodify our relationships, and to um, destroy the commons, which we share. And um, so you have a really interesting perspective on how capitalism affects people's interior emotions and their behaviors and beliefs. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about critical theory and your thoughts on that. <laughs> oh, this is great. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to respond to that by sort of backing up for a moment. And I think it comes back to actually an earlier question that you had asked me about um, my work and what I do. And I think the the way we look at our lives, and this is 
influence my choices both in terms of work and the way in which I'm going to move forward. Um, as a child, we were we were basically always told to to work hard, but in the sense of doing what you want to do, but doing it well. So that the hard work was figuring out what do you want to do? How do you want to spend your time? Where do you want to put your energy? What are your priorities? And so the the money, the notion of money associated with work, <laughs> to me was always that if you do what you what your heart desires or what you really value in the sense of your own life, I just, I just, the, the money will, will show up. In other words, if you work, it's a very strange idea, but if you work really hard and you stay focused and you're passionate, somehow um, that you will be able to live a life. You'll have food. You know, almost as if you're a Buddhist monk and you carry a bowl and you speak, you will be fed. To say that that is going to make you rich in the sense of a lot of money in the bank, but it does lead you to a life of staying focused on what it is that you want to do. And so with carrying that notion forward, that idea of an interior sense of something that will capture your spirit and that's what you want to spend your time doing, whether it's artwork or, in my case, I really enjoy meeting people and, and changing, you know, different practices, but all of that to me was designed, what I learned is that that's the value inherent in being a human being, that we can transform our energy into other things. And so as I was growing up and as I was going to school and as I was learning, it suddenly, um, as I was taking classes, I was really struck by when I was studying actually Marxist theory, by what he was talking about in terms of labor theory of value, and that value is associated with the labor, literally the sweat that you put into the work that you're doing, and that the value of whatever is being transformed, you know, whether it's soil being transformed into food with people helping that process along, that's how we would look at what we would gain in order to, to, to continue living. So my life has been actually affected by that, and I, I really think that one of the things living in the world we live in now, which is dominated by capitalism and the idea that value is associated with the market and whether or not there's a price associated with it and whether or not we can make a profit off, that to me is a, an idea, clearly an ideology, that's affected all sorts of all of our social relations. That instead of talking to each other about how can we work together and, and my focus in my world is really building collaboration. How can we build collaboration? How can we work together better so that we can respond to the challenges that you know, living on the planet hit us with? Um, how do we deal with uh, the weather, for example, um, even before the notions of climate change? How do we survive? How do human beings adapt based on our work, our labor? And so Growing up around the world, it was really clear that there are very different ideologies of how, what makes your life purposeful, what makes your life rich. And what strikes me whenever I come back to, let's say, the U.S. or other societies that are highly, highly focused on the individual and certainly on, on ideas that your work will give you something, you know, you can gain profit, you can make capital, you can get a bigger house, you can buy a bigger car – Quite frankly, I never quite understood that. I never quite figured out why was that object, that money, so much more important than figuring out how to work with people together. So that actually has colored both my personal 
um, decisions about work, as well as uh, the larger professional um, life focus, which is trying to figure out how to engage um, and use better practices that help us collaborate and actually work together and so we can accomplish goals. So it's a, sort of both a personal philosophy as well as, a, as you mentioned, a critical theory perspective, which was really, really pushed um, by what was called the Frankfurt School. And so when I teach, um, I do teach sociology, I often, I clearly will present other ways of putting the world together so that students begin to ask um, different questions, start to look at things a little bit differently. Mm. Thank you. That is so key is really that uh, that curiosity of what could be a different framework of understanding the world, of looking at the economy as a place where we come to care for one another instead of extract value competitively to hoard our own, you know, personal wealth so that we can get ahead and, and climb that ladder um, and, and grow grow our own uh, resources. I think it's, yeah, so fascinating. It's such a big, um, important thing to look at those interior belief structures and, and how that influences our behavior and our very definitions of, of success. And, and is there anything else you, you'd like to say about that and, and what you've seen uh, around the world and, and maybe even what we imagine the economy uh, could transform into being if it's more collaborative and, and caring and regenerative. As you were talking, one of the things that just flashed through my mind was I've lived in cities, um, for instance, I lived in Geneva for a long time, and I had friends also who were living in um, Denmark, in Copenhagen, and actually in other big cities, certainly in Berlin, for example. And there was a whole movement that the language was used, the term that was used is they were squatters. People would squat a building. And it was really, I really enjoyed part of what I like about my work I do is I can ask people a lot of questions. You know, why are you living this way? <laughs> why have you taken over a building? You know, why are you making it that there's a communal kitchen and a shared garden? And why is it that you want to live your life this way? And the response was really interesting is that the exp- exploration of how can you literally work or using that word again, labor together in a way that by coming together, by actually in engaging with each other instead of seeing each other in competition but seeing it as cooperative, that you can use the resources in a way that actually would lessen the the use of resource but actually allow for more people to be involved. So that's very much you also mentioned in the introduction that I'm very interested in uh, data and data integration and how can we use resources. So that's part of the, the key issue is that how can we really figure out different ways of using the limited resources and not having it just be more people using, in other words, more people using, working together, use more resources is actually a false set of assumptions. We're discovering that more people working together may actually lessen the resource load because new um, forms of work, new forms of working together and actually new um, products like our our. Uh, created. So that's something that I think is quite interesting to explore right now within that that domain. 
Yeah, that those collaborative approaches, which you uh, find so valuable, are um, are really I feel crucial to tackle some of these large problems and challenges that we're seeing with climate change, for instance. And the more we can have integrated uh, perspectives, where people aren't just in a silo of you know academia, say, but where there is more interdisciplinary communication and understanding built. And I'm curious what your experience has been um, with the power of collaboration and, and why you're such a big proponent of it. <laughs> That's so interesting. Well, part of this, what's interesting, again, and again, I'm really, really grateful, and this is what part of what I call my rich life. I've been able to work in countries um, literally around the world. So when I go to, I've been able to work in actually 10 different countries in Africa, completely historically, I mean, it's close to, in America, native, uh, the indigenous peoples, our native peoples, or First Nation in Canada, or in the indigenous people. But what's really interesting is that non, non-industrial societies, I don't want to say pre, because they still exist now, because they exist now, but non-industrial, non-capitalist societies, societies that are based on a different set of beliefs, are actually interdisciplinary by simply the recognition of the linkages of all the components that bring life together. So in some ways, I think we need to relearn what was completely lost and destroyed by a certain way of viewing the world that is actually a longer history. The notion of cooperation and collaboration has a far longer history with human species than the way in which we put the world together right now. So... By, by studying history, by studying anthropology, for example, by studying other cultures, I'm actually what I call a radical optimist because by all of this, what we've learned is that humans have this incredible capacity to be creative and to really make the world based on what we, what we believe. And so the more we can learn about collaboration and the way in which we can develop cooperative structures and the, that it has such a positive benefit, for our lives, which means we have to be open to seeing what the impact of collaboration is and not say no to it because it seems complex or different. Um, I think that's something which, which we as a society and certainly as, a, as, a, as the culture becomes more and more global because of our new communication technologies, I really think we need to address um, much more deeply how does collaboration get made? What are those minute day-to-day interactions between people, and you had mentioned language, what language can we use that reinforces collaboration in the little tiny things of everyday life um, that will bring us uh, to a way of being that's different than the highly competitive, completely defined by my own success? You know, how can I rise above others? How do I focus on my legacy? All the things that people are concerned about right now. It's very important that people begin to experience collaboration um, and, and that can only happen if we begin to act differently with both one-on-one as well as in groups, as well as in the organizations that we work in. So I think that's a critical first step, actually, is to think in a very different way. Yes, yes. Thank you for for mentioning all those scales and, and ways that it's, it's applied. And especially with so much, um, gosh, climate 
chaos <laughs> that we're seeing now. There's large fires burning in, in California, just devastating communities. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to continue to see uh, more climate um, migrants uh, need to move. And just um, could you ex- share a little bit more about what what you've seen that can make communities and people more resilient and more able to respond to change intelligently, both as individuals and and collectively as as communities. That's a, this, that's actually very tough, and I I think I might say something that might be a little I'm not sure whether it's controversial enough, and not your your listeners will certainly respond. But I think one of the most important things to think about and. You can tell I'm an outdoors person. I love to be outside, and even if it's cold. And if I go outside, I know that I have to put on two or three different layers because that's how I'm going to, I'm going to adapt and be resilient to the weather. So one of the things I think that's very, very important is the recognition that the weather and climate, and we're putting aside change right now, putting aside the changing part of the climate. But to be resilient means, in my mind, to be realistic, so that we have to recognize our relationship to what's happening in our, in our environment. So when people say, oh, it's so cold, I go, well, it's cold because we haven't, you haven't adapted, okay? It's the, there's really no such thing as bad weather. There's only inappropriate clothing. You're not, you're not prepared. And as a scientist who studied um, adaptation, how do we adapt humans? How do humans adapt to our environment? Well, in essence, our entire history is a history of human adaptation. So, for instance, when people say climate change migrants, I'm going, human beings have moved across the planet for centuries because of issues of food security, issue, you know, drought, floods. It's not new. The fact that we're start, we talk about human movement across the planet as if it's something new, it, to me, is a really uh, uh, it's not appropriate. It's not the way in which we're going to come up with solutions. I think we have to recognize what we're like as a species. What are human beings? Um, you know, we're, we're mobile. We move. We're curious. We travel around the planet. All of us have some form of relationship to people who have moved around the planet uh, for a variety of different reasons. So I think to be resilient in the contemporary sense, to be able to recognize that our, our environment is changing, means first the very first is to acknowledge the fact that we as human beings are responsible for our relationship to not only each other, but to the, to the environment that we live in. So I would ask a series of questions. If we're going to rebuild, whether it's in you know, the Carolinas along the coast or if it's in the mountains in the ravines where, the, where, the, um, where there's you know, tremendous um, uh, you know, the, the mountains are very steep, and so there's a potential for mudslides and for forests, you know, all of these potential disasters. We really need to ask ourselves, are we building the best, are we building in relationship to the environment? I mean, I, for example, I've got, we've had huge big discussions along the East Coast after the, uh, after the floods um, from the hurricanes. And people say, you know, we're going to rebuild our cities right back in exactly the same location where we know hurricanes hit. To me, I think we need to really take into account that it might be something that we look at, not our power as human beings to control nature, but how can we live and be much more realistic and understand 
our relationship to nature. So in that regard, for example, I've been very interested and done a lot with uh, uh, agroecology, permaculture, anything that seems to help us understand new relationships, I think, is is one of the things that's a, a challenge for all of us nowadays. Right. I, I love, like, um, that symbiotic relationship with the earth and with each other and just that deep listening, which is, um, I consider, a, a kind of a feminine quality that, of course, men can uh, have as well. But how how are we curious and asking the questions and not trying to dominate and control nature so much as, you know, biomimicry seeks to learn from her design. And, and so I, I think that that collaborative um, synergy is a key part of, of our resilience and our ability to, to be adaptive, um, both as individuals and, and with our um, society. Yeah, actually, and there's one other, a little, sort of a little story, too. Having been involved with, um, you know, working for myself as an American woman um, with an ancestry that's, that I'm certainly not coming from an African ancestry, so to work with people whose history is very different and to come in with new ideas. The idea of re- resilience and adaptation, I think, as you were mentioning, we need deep listening from other cultures on the planet. There are a lot of solutions and a lot of ways of understanding what's going on that we just completely ignore. So, for example, when people talk about best practice, I sort of shake my head and go, wait a minute, can we talk about it as appropriate practice? There is no one right way right now, but there's certainly ways that are much more appropriate for us to make decisions than than what we've been using because historically we think this is the way it should be done. And that that becomes very, very clear the more you travel and the more you work with people whose lives are defined by traditions and by stories and by an understanding of the environment that I really think is important that we we can hear. Um, In fact, here's sort of another thing that I find fun. When I travel, I I, I love music and I love to dance. And I think the way in which a society produces music can tell you a lot about how the people relate with each other. So in, in traditional African traditions, music isn't made by one person and then listened to by a passive audience. Music only exists when there's a relationship between a person playing some form of an instrument and people responding, whether it's dancing or joining in with other instruments. So music in and of itself is a collective action, and that reinforces people's understanding that life together we need to always be together. So there are deep, deep resonances and deep ways that we could, in our culture, begin to learn about how can, we, how can we learn those little, what I call, baby steps of collaboration. How can we even listen to each other um, so that we can do different, for example, different clapping rhythms. You know, it's real interesting. There are huge groups of people in the, in the world right now who, cannot, who don't even know how to do sort of clapping, you know, make percussive sounds together. And I think those are very easy ways to get people to realize we need to work together. 
Mm. I really appreciate how you're highlighting the the value in diversity and just really acknowledging that as as a strength, both within our biological systems and the different types of seeds that we grow that acclimate to different climates and diversity in, in individuals and our heritage and our unique genius that we come here with and just yeah. really coming to value that more and more. Um, yeah. But you're absolutely right. In fact, one of the things my deep sorrow and sadness right now is people just, I, I can't, frankly, I can't believe that beaver is under question. To me, that's the amazing part of living in the 21st century is that we have the capacity to very, very quickly learn so much from people. We've never had this opportunity on the planet ever before. It's an amazing historical moment. So instead of using this as a negation and trying to push people away, I think we should be sitting down, as you can tell, this is the teacher-professor part of me. We should be sitting down and really saying, this is when I do it this way, and they do it this way, and then have that wonderful moment where you begin to experiment and try and see how we can bring something new. How can we actually answer this current challenge? Right, right. And and that wisdom that can emerge that that really is, you know, not only intelligence and our ability to repeat facts, but how do we give spaciousness for the emergent regenerative uh, culture that will um, replenish our our society and our our earth itself uh, is so fascinating. Let's take a quick uh, break here here just for a minute and we'll be back and and I'd love to hear some more when we get back about uh, the role of women and in and uh, the variety of ways in which they uh, exercise power and and uh, participate in the economy around the world so we'll be back in just a moment are you ready to enjoy greater financial freedom perhaps you're like Emily a creative entrepreneur who wants to increase her income to provide for her family. Using the free video training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com, she learned the secrets to accessing hidden resources and creating lasting wealth. Emily learned a persuasive negotiation technique to bring in more money with her top clients. She boosted her credit score and opened new financial doors while reducing expenses. And she took specific steps to strengthen her existing relationships and create a safety net for her business. With the Discover Your True Wealth training, thousands of women have improved their bank balances and secured their family's future. With this free video course, you'll transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. Take charge of your financial situation with the training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Jerry Hush, who is a sociologist and uh, has traveled around the world and worked with people in a variety of cultures. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating to look at different definitions of success and power and how women are um, 
exercising that in in different cultures and uh you know it's it's so exciting to see how many uh younger women and uh women of color were elected in in the most recent midterms here in America and just wanted to hear from you a little bit more about uh what you've seen as as far as women in power and their power around the world. Yeah, it's true. Again, one is, and I, I really appreciate you recognizing that a lot of my work has been done in a lot of different places, which means I've met a lot of women who I consider incredibly dynamic and um, powerful in the sense that they have the capacity, they have confidence and they have the ability to make a statement and to really um, affect their communities. One of the things I found that's so interesting, and this again, I think it's something that we in the United States and as American women have to be cognizant of, is that what we might define as power, which is, I think I get the sense that it's our, our notion of power is what is something that's outward and public and that can be expressed in uh, domains that are outside of the home. And I think one of the things that's very important is to recognize the power that happens um, in some ways behind the veil, if you will, or behind the curtain or behind the, the kitchen door, <laughs> and that we have to be open. And this goes back to your recognition of my, of my real emphasis on diversity, is that what makes somebody powerful is the way that they are able to negotiate relationships so that essentially you don't really have power standing by yourself. You have power in relationship to others. And what that means and how it's defined and how it's used, I think is something that we need to really examine very, very closely, much more deeply than we're, I think we're, we're beginning to dig, so to speak. And I think, again, if we can look both into the past historically through you know, anthropology and through history, but we can also look forward and just begin to, in some ways, de- deconstruct what power means in the, in the sort of um, abstract sense and then begin to see how power can be negotiated in ways that um, we might not have recognized before. So let me give you, I'll give you an example um, in sociology, there's a, and also in, in, it depends on the discipline, but this is sort of a cross-disciplinary. You know, there's a lot of work being done in terms of language and linguistics and conversation, conversational analysis. And one of the things that's very interesting to listen to, not only in English, not only in American English, because as Americans we speak, um, we put our, in the structure, we very, very often put the subject verb right up in front of the sentence so that the listener and the action very quickly. Well, there are a lot of languages where the action doesn't show up in the sentence until the end of the sentence. So you really have to listen closely as to what's going on and who is the person that engaged in the action. And those, and that will tell you a lot about how power is going to be negotiated. What, who's speaking which language? What's the structure of the language being spoken? So often women will use... Um, and I see this, we, you know, women are, are, are associated with the idea of gossip. Well, what is gossip? And these are structured, these are ways of telling stories and ways of negotiating and sharing information that actually have a form of power embedded in them. And if we don't acknowledge that as power, and if we always look to another model, when I'm saying the sort of public demeanor, in some ways the way power has been defined 
you know, by societies that were not, um, that were dominated by um, you know, male notions of power, the external power, the brute strength kind of thing. Then we're going to really miss the opportunity to, to find how can we really um, engage in new ways of communicating, new ways of talking with each other. So there, I think there's a huge opportunity for both research and for talking and for training and for education that we can acknowledge that women's power has to be very carefully looked at before we continue to be uh, to say this is the way and this will be uh, the the best way to get the idea across. That being said, I'm really interested in seeing in the U.S. Congress what happens with this wonderful group of women who are coming in. I'm thrilled. Obviously, you could tell it would be something I'd be very excited about. I think there's a very, very different process that's going to start occurring. I think there's going to be a lot more impatience, and I think people are going to start to say, look, we've got to get this done. I think there's a lot more action-oriented. It'll be very interesting to see the terms people use. So I think, um, again, we have to be cautious about having the single answer and recognize that we're at a moment in our history. A, a lot of a lot of potential and, and change and, and really looking at, at that feminine leadership and uh, it really connects back to those definitions of wealth and success. Yeah. And um, I, I've recently, <clears throat> you know, uh, really been looking at, you know, in, in America, the rise of the two income households. And I absolutely believe women should have the choice of whether to, um, on their balance of home work life and, and how much they, uh, work outside the home. However, I, I feel like it's also important to look at the financial pressure and the rising cost of living and medical education, um, and housing that's really put this pressure on women where um, since the early 1980s, you know, there were more dual income households than not. And so I feel like because we're, we're seeing this as, as success that women are out there working more because we're not valuing the caring economy, the invisible work of tending to the children and the gardens and the household um, that, that really our, our society um, is, is, is struggling and, and many women, um, you know, are, are, would, would prefer to be um, working less, uh, but, but feel the financial pressure. Uh, what, what are your well, thoughts about yeah. that? Yeah, I think that's actually, that's a very, I think it's a very, very interesting point right now. One of the things, and, and actually even the way it was framed when you were saying, part of what's going on, and you mentioned the 80s, Part of what is going on with the need to have a dual income is that we have not, as a society, responded in the least to the social issues of raising children. We make childcare so expensive that you have to have an income. Almost people decide, I can't afford to work because it's cheaper if I actually stay home with the children. So we do not have any of those social services that provide for families to have the ability to raise children and raising children historically has been a collective activity. It has not been just the mother and or the caregivers, whoever it is, the, you know, however you just define the caregivers. It has not been, um, in my language, simply a nuclear family. The grandparents would be living closely or the aunts, the uncles, the brothers, the sisters. There would be a much broader scope of child care than what we define right now. 
And so instead of looking to answers in what I would call systematic ways or social system ways, uh, we keep putting the burden of responsibility on individual families. And I think that's a huge issue that's overlooked. For example, if you look in, I lived in Finland for a while, and in, I, I don't know the precise details, and a listener on this um, um, podcast might have the answer, but certainly in urban areas, within the residential blocks, there will be, for instance, a nurse on call that's there for a certain number of the population. There'll be a childcare nursery that's supported so that if you live in the, the area, you bring your child down and it can be, and the child will be taken care of. There's a far more sense of collective responsibility than we place in the U.S. And so I think what happens is that we get caught up in this idea that, oh, I'm responsible for my child, and I have to earn an income, and I have to make sure that they're doing okay, where we're losing the capacity to, to say, wait a minute, how have other human beings done this? It's not the first time people have had kids. You know, the last 50 years are not the first time we've been able to, we've had to have children and we've had to feed them and clothe them and educate them and tend to their health. And I think this is why you can tell I'm very, very concerned that we've limited our scope of understanding about options and so that the burden is once again placed on an individual. And so the tension between the people raising the children is, well, you need to go to work or I can't work. or I mean, it just becomes a very heightened and... Um, Tense reality instead of trying to figure out how can we as a society make sure that we raise our children and that we stay healthy and that we have good food. Uh, so again, I think there are options that we haven't even put on the table. Mm, yes, so true. And and it <clears throat> makes me think, oh, you know, it's important to look at the definition of, of poverty as well. And, and I really see that poverty stems from our disconnection in so many senses, not only financially, but our disconnection from earth, this, you know, rise in prescription medication and depression and suicide here in these um, countries like the U.S. that, that are developed and quote successful financially and and there's so much about the qualitative measure of, of quality of life that's just missed in the in the economic measurement of, of people's well being. Yeah, exactly. So there's there is a move afoot um coming out of actually a very small country, Bhutan, to have and maybe you've heard of this and maybe you've had people on who are much again who are in that field. But the measurement of happiness is actually being discussed uh, rather than GDP being the disgust of a measure of success for society. And I think even having that conversation shifts the gaze. And I think we, we need to shift, again, as you mentioned, we need to shift our notion of what is a, what is a healthy, what is a, a you know, good, healthy, balanced life right now? And how can we begin to present different options. Um, and, and it's very difficult. And in American society, we do not teach, we really do not teach um, very many um, options. We don't teach, for example, we don't, we don't teach political economy or um, what's going on in a lot of other countries where they're discussing socialist democracies and what does that mean for, for policies and how can we make sure that it's democratic and equitable we don't even we're, it's very difficult for us to even use the terms theoretically which means we're not you know if you if you don't have a language to explore something you know if you have a hundred different yellow flowers and they're all yellow flowers 
you're never able to go in and really look at the distinguishing elements of those yellow flowers. So if we don't have a language for looking at other economic models and ways in which we can both produce and distribute goods, we don't know. We're not anywhere near understanding what's actually, you know, what we're capable of. So I think it's important, again, to make sure that we start to, we really do begin to have conversations that we haven't been having and that we do bring in knowledge both historically and in current different ways of looking at uh, wealth and riches and money and exchange, all that stuff that makes our lives day to day. And especially as women, because we have a very different uh, relationship to uh, being the decision makers with these, um, again, more public and certainly much more um, the bigger pictures, the bigger social issues. I think it's very important that we come to that table with a language that's not simply the language that's traditionally been used, but a language that allows us to go beyond what's been said traditionally. Yes, yes, I I agree. The conversations are so important right now, especially about taboo topics like money and ways that we can steward resources together without, you know, this competition and secrecy. And there's so little transparency in the financial and political world that I feel like is really keeping us back from uh, tapping our collective intelligence. And yeah. I'm curious what you have to say about, you know, both what what listeners could do uh, to create more meaningful conversations and, and transparency or, or some of the hopeful um, examples of that you've seen of this. Well, it's interesting. I think you kind of nailed, you opened the door by saying, um, difficult discussions about money. I, money is money. I don't understand. I must understand why it's a difficult conversation. When you don't have it, it's certainly difficult because you keep needing to find it. And now, especially in the U.S., if we don't have money, if you don't have a job, much of what we have is tied to a job, even our health insurance. So we, we need to, I think, that we need to just understand that this is it's reality. It's like it's like talking about money is talking about reality. It's a form of of exchange. It's an interaction. And the theories around how you gain access to that money to be understood. And that's why I keep talking about different different models. Whether it's a capitalistic model or socialistic model or a cooperative model or any number of different ways of talking about the you know, exchange, production, distribution of goods. That's money. And we now live on a money economy versus, for example, barter economy. But to not be able to talk about that, and that's part of our problem in the country, is that for some reason talking about that has become, is just, it's an untouchable subject. I mean, I grew up as a kid you know, always having to work. I started working when I was 16. I was a sales girl because we just, you know, you need money. You need to pay the rent. I still, when I'm not teaching, if I'm in between projects, I will I'll cook. You know, you, you work. I have to pay the rent. But by having that philosophy, wherever I've lived, I have to understand the economy where I live. So how can I, how can I get a, a place that's dry in a culture? You know, what is it that I have to do? Do I contribute to the, to the garden and go out and do that? I might not get money as such, but I have a place to live. So I think it's important that we view exchange 
as, as a conversation that needs to be held. And no matter what, both personal finances and um, uh, organizational finances, um, I, think it's, I, I, I think it's important um, that people understand the reality of budgets and that things cost. Um, need to be able to have the resources to continue to go forward. You um, know, I, I love how you said exchange is a conversation, and I feel like that there is listening that's needed um, in in our exchanges. You know, what is really needed? How am I creating value? Um, how how can we make more visible the needs of our community and and the offers of people within it, so that we can have exchanges that are not just transactional about getting as much as you can from the other person. But, but about developing relationships and, and about yeah. two plus two equals more than four, that we've created yeah. something bigger than just the individual parts. And so in, in closing here, I'm, I'm curious if there's anything you'd like to say about, about that. To be an individual means that you have to be part of the collective. And that tension between the individual and what I want or what I think I want or what I think I need, the stuff, has to be really reflected on right now. Because that has not, and we know this from literature and from conversations, we know this, but people are not feeling that, feeling contentment that that, the stuff, the individual stuff was, quote, you know, that we expected, that was supposed to happen. And instead of turning, I think, for me, the important part, part is to actually face that. What has happened that has led people to feel that emptiness? And it may be that we, need to, we really need to, as you say, listen better, and we need to practice. I, I fully think we need to engage in the action, for example, maybe learning how to cook together again, learning how to make music together again. It may not be the iPod or the, the music that's coming from the the technology that's going to help us and getting the better technology it might be learning how to sing together. Very basic ways of interacting, I think, that are often overlooked that I think are, are add to what, you know, as I began, this, add to the richness of our lives that can add to and help to fulfill us a bit more than what we've ever thought we needed. Wow, I what a great uh place to end there. Just that that um learning how to sing together again, learning how to harmonize, learning how through a healthy marketplace where we care for one another that we can bring our unique instruments and voices and and contribute to the regeneration of the whole and just uh so thrilled to hear your wisdom that you've gained from these decades uh working around the world and so glad to know that your voice is there in those um UN meetings and and these big global organizations that are grappling with how to measure qualitative value and what poverty is and and how we can collaborate more effectively to bring more joy and prosperity into our families and communities and and how women are leading the way in in so many ways around the world uh, both seen and and um, often unseen 
And so thank you, Jerry, so much for, for all that you shared with us here today. I feel so uplifted to really um, know that there are deep thinkers like you looking at systemic change and language and belief and, and how we can transform our society from the inside out to become uh, a thriving world. Thank you so much. for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve. 